Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, here's a quick message from our friends at Sustain. Do you ever think about what you're putting inside your body? Well, you should. Many products that women use lack substantial testing. Sustain is committed to solving that problem. All of their products are organic, vegan, fair trade, sustainably made, and free of synthetic ingredients that are commonly found in products like tampons. Plus, it's a women-founded company. Sustain gives 10% of their profits to women's healthcare organizations. That's really important because over 20 million women in the U.S. lack access to reproductive health care. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order and free shipping right to your door when you sign up at SustainNatural.com and use the code WOMEN20 at checkout. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. Over the last 38 years, I've had the opportunity to witness women soldiers jump out of airplanes, hike 10 miles, lead men and women, even under the toughest circumstances. Today, what was once a band of brothers has truly become a band of brothers and sisters. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. There's a record number of women running for office this year. We're telling their stories. We're also digging into why there are fewer women in office and why often women don't want to run. This week, we're telling the story of a candidate with another set of diverse experiences. She's had immense success in the private sector, and she's also part of a growing group of women who previously served in the U.S. military. Before we get further into this episode, I want to apologize for some of the audio quality. In order to tell these stories, many of these interviews had to be done from the campaign trail. I think the content's worth the sometimes less than optimal sound. Historically, a stereotype that's affected women is that women are too soft to be leaders. What is that whipcord resilience that lets the weaker sex play half the night, then bob up clear-eyed, ready for the next morning's work? This frail creature strikes her typewriter keys about 40,000 times a day. Spaces 7,000 times. Shifts to capitals and returns the carriage more than a thousand times each. Altogether, a few ounces at a time, she exerts more than five tons of pressure on her dainty fingertips in one day's work. But those who served in the military directly counter that notion. Here's Debbie Walsh. She's the executive director of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. One of the things we're seeing this time around are some different resumes. We're seeing a lot of women running who are veterans, military veterans. And to me, that's a real value added in the mix because one of the things that has always gotten raised when a woman runs for office is, well, is she tough enough and is she strong enough? But, you know, look, if you've been in Afghanistan as a vet, I think it's pretty hard to say uh, you can't handle some guys in Congress. You see it in the ads that these women are, are making about themselves, both Democrats and Republicans. 
they're using that military experience and that toughness to their advantage, as they should. I mean, it has been a value added for men for centuries from our very first president, right, who was a general. Having that experience is something that has been prized and valued, and women candidates have not had it in the past, and I think we're seeing a new generation. Part of the increase of women with different career backgrounds is simply the fact that women are able to work in more industries than in previous eras. Kathleen Dolan spoke with me about that. She's a distinguished professor and the chair of the political science department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. There is sort of increasing diversity in the backgrounds of women who run for office. And that is in part a function because there is simply increasing diversity in the roles that women can play in occupational life in the United States. So we can have combat pilots now run for office, and those are women because we now have female combat pilots. So, you know, the world of occupation and experience has opened to women even in the last 10 or 15 years in the ways that it wasn't open when I was young. New opportunities have opened up for women, and traditional stereotypes are, in some cases, falling to the wayside. The diversity among women candidates, I think, is a reflection of women's larger place in in our cultural life. It used to be the case maybe 40, 50 years ago that people saw women as unqualified or didn't have the right experience or weren't appropriate for office. But there's none of that now in any of the evidence that we found. Surveys that we do of voters show that people see all the same sorts of leadership qualities that they expect of candidates for office in both women and men. There's actually, even in the last 10 years, almost a bit of a bias in favor of women. And if you think about some of the media coverage of the women candidates in 2018, they actually sometimes veer into this sort of positive stereotype that women are better, you know, that they're better people, that they're more moral, that they care more, that government will do more and different things and do it better if there are more women in office. The negative stereotypes, you know, about women are fading quickly. And in some cases, they're being replaced by positive stereotypes. Now, again, that doesn't mean that there aren't individuals out in the country who think that women are inappropriate for office and don't know anything. There will always be people on a range of positions, but the general position, the average attitude toward women candidates is that they're perfectly qualified and perfectly acceptable. Our candidate of the week has had many different careers, meaning she's had a vast array of experiences. She served as a captain in the U.S. Air Force Reserve. She was an engineer. She worked as chief operating officer for And One, which had over $250 million in annual revenue. And she's been a chemistry teacher, just to name a few. All of those jobs have helped to shape her political perspective. So my name is Chrissy Houlihan. I am 51 years old. I am a candidate for Congress in Pennsylvania's 6th Congressional District. Chrissy was born in 1967, 51 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress and 47 years after women won the right to vote. She grew up as the daughter of a career naval officer, so she moved around nearly every year as a child. Chrissy would go on to join the Air Force, making her third-generation military. Her grandfather was a career naval officer, too. In Chrissy's house growing up, there was a big emphasis on the importance of the democratic process. There certainly was political conversation at my table, but I also remember conversations 
that were not necessarily political, but had more to do with our democracy. And it was, you know, with every cycle, with every election, regardless of who won, my father and mother would talk to me about that the people had spoken, that the democratic process was active and alive, and that regardless of who won, regardless of what party or policy, that your responsibility was to salute smartly and respect the commander in chief and honor the decision of the American people. Chrissy initially wanted to become an astronaut. She went to Stanford and joined ROTC in college with a scholarship in engineering. Still, in the end, she decided to stick with the more earthbound profession. Immediately after school, I actually was an engineer up in the Boston area working on the Strategic and Air Defense Missile Protection Programs, SDI and ADI. Pretty early on, I decided not to be an astronaut, largely because I had experienced what it meant to be the daughter of a very wandering lifestyle and had met my husband early on and realized that that wasn't a very fair thing to ask of my husband and my family. So I decided to just be an engineer. And I went back and got a graduate degree also in engineering and from there moved into business. I had the chance to join some friends of mine who had started a basketball apparel and footwear company down in the Philadelphia area. And that's where I had the chance to move my very young family. I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old at the time down to the Philadelphia suburbs. And I've lived there ever since with a bunch of my college buddies growing a bunch of different really great businesses. And as I mentioned, the first one was focused on footwear and apparel in the basketball industry. I served as their chief operating officer there for more than a decade, grew that company to more than $250 million in revenues. And then following that, had the opportunity to grow a number of other organizations, ending in one that focuses on early childhood literacy. I took a little bit of a side turn into Teach for America as a 45-year-old woman. I wanted to really be helpful in education and thought that the best way that I could possibly do that was to first understand what teachers were experiencing in the classroom. And so I joined Teach for America and taught chemistry and effectively learned that the biggest challenge that I could be helpful on was early childhood literacy. Uh, And so I ended my uh, career up and until running for Congress by helping to grow an organization that focuses on early childhood literacy in our most underserved communities. Chrissy's held a lot of different jobs in different industries, but she says each role falls under a unifying theme. Well, you know, I kind of believe that although those are very eclectic things and don't seemingly ostensibly have a lot in common, in my mind, they have in common that they are of service in one form or another. And so I really did feel as though throughout those 30 years that in one form or another, I was being of service, whether it was serving in the military or growing socially responsible businesses or finally growing and worrying about education. I sort of thought that politics, frankly, were for other people and that the political process was for other people, but that politicians and the government were worried about the same things that I was worried about in my own career, in my own path. And that is making sure that we're secure, making sure we have good jobs that care for one another and and making sure that we educate ourselves and our future generations. And so to me, there are parallel paths. And the only difference is I really didn't think that politics was necessarily a path that I would be on. So what pushed Chrissy into politics? Enter the 2016 election. For the first time, Chrissy felt the best way to serve her country might be to step up and run. So I was really kind of compelled to run for office as a result of the presidential election of 2016. For the very first time, I was worried that our democratic values and our basic freedoms, you know, again, independent of party and independent of policy, were being threatened by what I considered to be a worrisome decision on the part of the American people. And I did a little bit of self-inventory, realized that I kind of had the things that I thought would be most useful to be helpful in this time of crisis in our nation. 
As we've previously discussed on this show, women tend to run because they want to take action on specific policies or issues. That personal drive is pushing candidates forward. For voters, candidates' career histories can make it easier to understand why someone is qualified to get that job done. Here's Tori Van Oot. She's a freelance political reporter based in Minneapolis. Job background is another shortcut that voters use to make snap judgments about whether they think someone is qualified or ready for the job. So any way you can use your professional experience or background to send a message to voters, it can certainly be helpful. In California, candidates actually have their job description on the ballot. And it's such a big deal that candidates go to court over it. So every election, rival candidates are suing one another over like, you can't say you're a teacher because you only teach one community college course. Or like you say you're a farmer, but you make all of your money from real estate investments. And the reason that there are lawsuits over that is because it does make a difference to voters what someone has on their resume. It may be particularly helpful to have military experience on your resume. Here's Amanda Hunter, the communications director for the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. We're keeping a close eye on veterans running for office. That is just such a fascinating and encouraging thread to look at. It seems as though voters are reacting very favorably to a number of the women that are putting their veteran status front and center. And that's also another example of women running because they saw the impact of an issue since a lot of those veterans have direct links in their materials to their opinions on the military or foreign policy or other issues that they probably became interested in during their time in the military. For Chrissy, her career background helped her to feel qualified to run. But the decision was also centered on the personal. Having the background in security and in business and in education, I thought were useful assets for uh, serving in government. But it was actually much more personal than that. My decision was not just about my resume, but also had to do with the fact that what I didn't mention about my father is that he is also a Holocaust survivor. He came here as a five-year-old child, having survived the war, and his mother survived as well. And when they came here as a small family and my father built you know, a very successful life for himself and for me subsequently, he really, after the election, came to me and was very worried about the results of what we had just said to each other. And he was very worried that once again, that we were going to be isolating people and that we might need to consider again, building out basements to hide people and that he would once again be possibly a refugee in his own country. And similarly, I have now a grown daughter who was three when I came to our community, but is now 26 and she is gay. And she also was very, very worried about what the results of the 2016 election had said about her community and about other communities like hers. And so when I took a little bit of an inventory and realized that both generations to either side of me were just as worried as I was, the realization was that I had the ability and the passion and the time to be able to be part of the solution. And that's when I decided to run for Congress. Part of Chrissy's decision-making process to run for office came while she was doing a different kind of running. When the election of 2016 happened, my husband and I were both going to turn 50 during the next year, and we were trying to celebrate our upcoming 50th birthdays by running a race in all 50 states. It had to be no less than five miles and no more than a half marathon. It needed a T-shirt. You needed a bib. You know, there were sort of rules about that. We were making some progress. We, you know, we were making some headway. And actually, one of the really cool motivations for me running for Congress is that following the election of 2016 during Martin Luther King weekend, 
my husband and I were down south and we were able to run a race. I believe it was Alabama and it was Georgia. The third one may have been Mississippi. We found a way on Martin Luther King weekend to hit three states in three days with those race parameters. And it was really an impactful experience, not just because the message of Martin Luther King Jr. is everywhere in all of those different states, but also it was the weekend, as you might recall, that President Trump was tweeting about John Lewis and about the fact that he was talk, talk, talk and no action. Chrissy's talking about the legendary civil rights activist who's now a congressman from Georgia. Among other accomplishments, John Lewis was the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and helped to organize the 1963 March on Washington. And the fact that I was standing there in the heart of Martin Luther King Jr.'s impact area, listening to my nearly President Trump berating one of the most remarkable men of our generation in John Lewis and telling him that he was not an actor when I was literally standing on the place where John Lewis's head was beaten in was to me my own personal call to action. And it was in a lot of ways the beginning process of me trying to figure out how do I, how do I make a difference? I can't possibly be John Lewis, but how do I do my part? Chrissy was not recruited to run for office. Instead, she raised her hand. My own tale of raising my hand is an interesting one. The first thing that I did is I went to the Chester County Democratic Committee and I went to a training session, having only before knocked on doors or made phone calls. That was the sum and total of my political engagement um, in other campaigns. The second thing that I did, which is sort of odd, is I am a regular $10 a month donor to Emily's List. And I got an email every day probably from them asking me for a dollar or three or 11. And I hit reply to one of those solicitations and I attached my resume. And I said, I'm interested in running for office and can somebody call me? In case you missed some of the other episodes, Emily's List is an organization that was created to help elect pro-choice Democratic women to office. And I, of course, never expected that anybody would be answering that inbox. But it turned out that somebody was monitoring it and they did answer me. Here's Emily Kane. She's the executive director of Emily's List. In 2016, we had the highest number of women ever at that time actually reach out to us to say they wanted to make a plan to run for office. It was 920 women who reached out to us, and we thought, wow, this is a big moment with Hillary Clinton on the ticket for president. Almost 1,000 women are reaching out to us to say they might want to run for office. This is huge. And then Donald Trump got elected, and Hillary Clinton lost. And the Republican Congress took over and Republicans took over state houses around the country and started rolling back laws, attacking women and families, going after Planned Parenthood. And within one month of that election, more than a thousand women had reached out to us to say they wanted to run for office. And as of today, that number is now more than 40,000 strong, representing women in all 50 states, women who are saying they want to make a plan to run for office. So 2018 is not just another year of the woman. This is not a wave of women running for office. This is a sea change moment for women in politics. If you want to hear more from Emily, check out our first bonus episode. Now back to Chrissy. That's effectively like a 4,000% increase election cycle to election cycle. So I think that there's just a ton of energy that it's hard for me to describe or explain why I was motivated to do what I did, but clearly I wasn't alone. I am frankly a pretty introverted person and in my career I have done a lot of interesting things, but much of that has been behind the scenes and sort of back of house. And so being you know front of house and effectively the brand and the name and the face of this campaign is definitely an out of body experience and something that I never anticipated doing. And I am definitely strengthened by all of the other women 
candidates and women in general who I get to meet along the way. This is a remarkable time to be running for office as a woman. There is a group not only of Emily's List as an example, endorsed candidates, but there's another group of endorsed candidates that are part of something called Serve America that have military backgrounds or careers of service that I'm part of. And a large number of those people are women as well. There's another group that's called the Arena that I'm part of too, that has a lot of really very talented women and men that are part of it. And that does give me a lot of energy to know that I am not alone because it is a very isolating experience and it is really grueling. Chrissy has almost always been in environments where most of her peers were men. For the vast majority of my career, I have been effectively in mostly male organized or mostly male dominated organizations from the very beginning. You know, as an engineer, I was one of 10 women in my engineering undergraduate program and even fewer in my graduate school program. And then, of course, in the military and then following that, of all things, a basketball apparel and footwear company. And then my very first kind of opportunity to work in a more evenly balanced environment was in education and in teaching. But all of those experiences have a lot in common, which is that those are very diverse experiences where I was asked and challenged to work with a lot of very different kinds of people from different backgrounds. And so those are experiences that I'm really hopeful that I'll be able to bring on the 6th Congressional District's people's behalf to Congress. What's interesting about our Congress delegation, the Pennsylvanian delegation, is that we are the nation's largest all-male delegation right now. When I hopefully join the ranks, I will be adding to the diversity specifically in gender, but I also will be adding to the diversity in terms of people with experience in education or experience in building and growing sustainable and responsible businesses or people with experience in defense are uncommon in our congressional halls, and we need to add that sort of diversity as well. I'm hopeful that I'll be able to bring that on our behalves too. Here's a little more on Pennsylvania's 6th District. So we are about 45 minutes west of Philadelphia. This is a district that is both suburban because it's sort of the bedroom communities of Philadelphia and rural because it has a lot of the rolling countryside going westward and a lot of agriculture. And then going northward into Berks County, it has Redding, which is a former industrial giant. We are a community that, as drawn, would have voted for Hillary Clinton for president the last election cycle, but also on the very same day elected Senator Pat Toomey, who's a Republican. So we're very much what I describe to outsiders as a kind of a purple people. I had the chance to visit a really cool part of our district. I go there probably three or four times a year, actually. It's called Longwood Gardens, and it's a really good exemplar of what it is that's special about our community. It is a garden that was started by one of the DuPonts, and it's vast and very, very elegant. It's like a Versailles, for lack of a better way of describing it, with really pretty gardens and trees but it also has a really elaborate fountain structure as part of it because he was an engineer and really engaged in engineering tasks. And why I like it is it's a really good confluence of all the things that are so special. It's beautiful and green, just like Chester County is. It has a really high tech component in it with the fountain works. And it also has kind of a really cool emphasis on um, employing a lot of folks in our community to make the gardens happen, to make the technology happen. I don't believe that the issues of our community are any different than those of many other communities in Pennsylvania or the nation at large. I call them sort of the human needs. I think fundamentally our issues are security. We want to make sure that we have health care. We want to make sure that we have good jobs and that those jobs treat us well. We want to make sure that we have the education that it takes to be able to hold those jobs. And we want to make sure that our planet is a safe place to live, you know, that our environment is a good place too. 
Chrissy says her many experiences in the professional world have prepared her to tackle the issues most important to her constituents. One of those central challenges is education. As I mentioned, I'm the daughter of a refugee, and my father raised me and mother raised me with sort of one large mantra, which is education is the great equalizer. You have your brain, you have your education. So I was always raised with a healthy respect for how important it was to be well-educated and for our nation to also make sure that all of us are educated. So for me, it was sort of a natural transition to go and bring my business background into education about six or seven years ago. I had always had the opportunity through And One, the basketball, a company that I helped grow, to volunteer in education, whether it was women and girls in math and science or whether it was substitute teaching in underserved schools. Those were things that I used my spare time to do. But when I wanted to go and turn my professional attention to education, my first thought was that I needed to first be a teacher. And that's why I joined Teach for America. And I did want to focus on chemistry or science because that was important to me. I think that technology, STEM and STEAM education are important resources for all of us to have. And my experience in the classroom was really life-changing. It was the hardest thing that I've done, hands down, of all the professional things I've done. It was the realization that no matter how hard I tried to educate the kids in my classroom, they were reading at about the third and fourth grade level, and they really weren't going to be able to be successful chemists if they didn't have those basic fundamental literacy skills. So that really did inform me to be helpful for the last five years in growing this company that focuses on early childhood literacy. And I think that we are in a crisis of education, and frankly, that's why I quit my job to join the education fight, because I thought at that time that that was the big crisis in our country. And now, of course, I believe that there's a much larger crisis in our country, which is the crisis of our democracy and our basic freedoms. And that's why I've decided to move into a different area. Another policy area that we've heard about from candidates all over the country is health care. Chrissy spoke to that point, too. I got a, a really lovely email from a woman who identified herself as a Republican, lifelong Republican voter, and she and her husband would be voting for me. And she recounted that she'd very much like to help me, either by volunteering and knocking doors or by contributing financially, but that she wasn't able to do that. And that she would be happy to be helpful either on the phones or maybe writing postcards, but that she was not able to afford to be helpful because her husband's medical bills were $700 a month and because she was not able to physically leave the house. And this was kind of a real gut check in a lot of ways, a really personal email that came through that really gave me pause and made me realize in a way that I hardly ever get to, you know, in this campaign whirlwind, just how important all of these people and these decisions are to all of us. You know, there are real human beings on the other side of all these conversations that are really struggling and they're really trying to do the right thing. And the fact that she was reaching out to me with such hope and enthusiasm to support my campaign, but also with such reality, you know, in terms of what was affecting her and her ability to participate in our society was really a call to action that I really need more of those stories because it otherwise it's a whirlwind of appearances and fundraising and that sort of thing. Chrissy's myriad experiences have helped her to see more clearly the problems being faced by her constituents. Having people with a variety of different backgrounds and perspectives could make our government better. More diversity of all types could make the business world better, too. Here's Claire Bresnahan English on that point. Claire's the former executive director of She Should Run, a nonpartisan organization that aims to expand the talent pool of women running for office in the U.S. Now, Claire's the project director for a strategy firm called Talk to Jess, 
which advises global brands on representation and inclusion. We get this question both in the private sector and the public sector, right? Why do we need more women in office? Why do we need more women in leadership? And, and time and time again, we have research now that shows that when board of directors, when company leaderships, when our elected officials represent the people we're serving, we make better decisions for our consumers in the private sector, for our voters in the public sector. We make better decisions when there's a diverse representation of lived experiences. As we get closer and closer to November 6th, Chrissy's race is in the voters' hands. I am at one time exhausted and at the other time energized. It's been a long road. I had no appreciation until I did this, just how all-encompassing this process is for people who seek this way of serving. I am enormously optimistic, not just for the opportunity in our district and hopefully for the benefits that I will try to bring to Washington on our behalf, but optimistic for the nation as a whole. As I talked about with the candidates that I've been able to meet, you know, singularly qualified people who are in it for all of the right reasons, who have raised their hands at this time of crisis because they think and believe that they can be helpful. That gives me enormous hope. This is, I hope, a self-correcting democracy. That's what it's all about. And I'm sad that it took this sort of an event for people like me to make this sort of commitment. But I am really heartened by the level of activism and energy that not just my community has, but the country at large has to make sure that we protect the things that are so precious to us. Our democracy, it is a participation sport. You have to be part of it to protect it. And I think we are uniquely uh, energized to do that right now. This episode is the first of three in which we're going to feature candidates who have had careers that combat traditional stereotypes stemming from the notion that women are the weaker sex. Next week, we'll be talking to a former CIA agent turned Girl Scout troop leader turned candidate. So as an intel officer, I was collecting information. I was running through all these contingencies, running through all of these scenarios for the sole purpose of allowing people to make really good decisions. And the fact that we had a Congress that was not making an informed decision, or certainly not speaking to the information provided to them, but really just making a decision based on ideology, it was unacceptable for me. And I felt it was an abdication of their responsibility to really be elected representatives. And so that was the day that I definitively decided that I was on. More on that coming to you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. And if you didn't, let me know. Let's start a conversation. This movement is all about reaching out to the other increasing empathy for opposing viewpoints, and sharing in the quest for justice and progress. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan, follow us on Instagram at WMN.media, or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week.